Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay, and that includes sailors from San Francisco, sailors like Randall Reeves. Randall sailed out the Golden Gate almost exactly a year ago to take a second shot at what he calls the figure eight voyage. He turned left, sailed down to Cape Horn, where he took another left, then sailed all the way around Antarctica, around the Horn again. Then he headed up the Atlantic to Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was there, after he had spent eight months at sea alone, that I last caught up with Randall, because completely by chance, I was also in Halifax, having sailed in from Annapolis. Randall was preparing himself and his boat, Moly, for their long slog through the Northwest Passage, before he'd make one final left turn home towards San Francisco. Well, just a few days ago, after successfully dodging ice and managing fatigue, he officially made it through the Northwest Passage. I caught up with Randall by phone on Sunday during his brief stay in Nome, Alaska, as he prepared for his final push home. Enjoy our conversation. I want to start, Randall, by congratulating you on getting through the Northwest Passage. Um, you are officially through, right? Can, can, what is the definition of completing the Northwest Passage? Sure. Uh, an excellent question, especially since uh, on my blog reports over the last several days, I have uh, called that very thing into question. Um, I had thought that a Northwest Passage was a passage over the top of Canada and Alaska from the Arctic Circle on one side to the Arctic Circle on the other. Uh, the Arctic Circle is at 66 and a half north uh, on both sides. And I, actually, in retrospect, I don't know why I thought that. Uh, I think if there is an official Northwest Passage, and one, of course, would have to wonder who on earth would be the referee for something like that. But if there is an official Northwest Passage, I think it is actually from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean over the top of Canada and Alaska or the reverse. So from one big ocean to the other. So one learning for me is that uh, technically the Bering Sea is part of the Pacific and Davis Strait and Baffin Bay on the Atlantic side are part of the Atlantic. So um, yesterday at some point, uh, so no, sorry, I take that back. Two days ago now when I crossed, uh, uh, came around Cape Prince of Wales into the Bering Sea, I completed a Northwest Passage for 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It, uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult. <laughs> this is maybe not a shock uh, to anyone listening, but uh, it, was, uh, it was really it got my attention. Uh, ice, is, ice is quite the thing. Talk about that, just the, the day in, day out watching for ice and not knowing if you're going to be able to make it through the next pass. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I found it, I knew going in it would be very challenging because I've been up here before. I went through the Northwest Passage in 2014 as a crew member on another boat by way of practice. Uh, even back in 2012 and 13, when I was beginning to formulate the figure eight voyage, it was pretty clear to me that the Northwest Passage was going to be challenging for someone with blue water experience, but not a lot of uh, ice experience at all. And 
So I came into the season with that one year up here under my belt, and it was still tough. We, we being Mo and I, the boat and I, didn't encounter a lot of ice until we got into, I would say, about a third of the way into the passage. And that's kind of where you typically get it, uh, in the middle of the Canadian archipelago, where there's not much current, and the ice has to actually melt as opposed to getting flushed out, as it does in, in much of the other parts of the passage. And uh, there was quite a bit of ice between the, the, the bottom of Lancaster Sound and Cambridge Bay, which is a run of about 600 miles. And I, I found it really challenging. I mean, uh, it's one thing to be piloting through shallow waters that aren't well-sounded and narrow passes, uh, with land close by on both sides. Uh, but when you add in ice, that really uh, that really changes the equation, and so you know, I, I hand steered Mo for several days of twelve hour shifts, and and on the one hand it was a lot of fun because it was it was clear that we could make it, but on the other hand it was also you know ice moves, and if we had had wind, especially on the last couple of days, it, it could have been it could have been super dicey. Was the exhaustion? different uh than in the southern ocean or other long stretches you had done it was different because i was at the tiller for so many hours uh the ice was ice on the ice charts is measured in tenths of concentration so one tenth of concentration is not very much ice and nine tenths of concentration is almost total and even though mo is a tough tough boat she's not an icebreaker and so we're looking for pretty mild conditions. We're looking for one, two, three, and four tenths ice. And there were times when we were in five and six tenths ice and pretty, pretty tough going. Uh, a lot of maneuvering and especially when I got tired, uh, not a lot of, not a lot of smart maneuvering. There were quite a number of, uh, uh, pieces of pack ice that I, I left bottom paint on as we went by. In fact, I, at one point I was so tired that I, I could see a lane ahead where it was, you know, blue water, no ice ahead for quite a while. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to dash down below and take a, a five-minute nap. And I quite literally set the timer for five minutes, knowing that we had at least 15, 20 minutes of clear water ahead. And on the fourth minute of my five-minute nap, we whacked something really hard. I mean, the boat went from six or seven knots right down to nothing. Uh, the engine ground right down, and I dashed up on deck, threw the engine into neutral, and looked forward, and we had clobbered uh, a, a growler probably the size of a car, and uh, just really shook the boat hard. didn't seem to do any damage. I couldn't find any damage on the boat. Uh, but we split the ice block in two. I was pretty proud of that, actually. <laughs> wow. But not a smart move. <laughs> not a smart move. Uh, but it, there's just... It's either it's either that or stop the boat entirely, and, I, and in that particular case, I decided to try to try to catch a couple of Z's while the boat made some way. What do you do first when you hit a piece of ice that hard? You must be concerned about the damage you possibly have done to the boat. Where what's your procedure if there is one? Well, I, I was certain. For the next hour, I was certain Mo was sinking. <laughs> I it just, you know, she seemed sluggish. She seemed down by the bow. I thought, oh, man, I've got a hole up there. And I, 
I opened up the anchor locker, had a good look, I had a good listen. Nothing. There's just there was nothing. It was just me being afraid. Mo has a watertight bulkhead between the anchor locker and the forecastle berth. So even if I had put a hole in the boat up forward, I think we still would have at least been able to float. But yeah, that you. <laughs> of course, when you do something as dramatic as ram your boat into a growler, uh, it's probably not surprising that uh, for a good long while after that, I thought we were fatally damaged. But no, we weren't. I, 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 at the next anchorage, when I got the dinghy down, I went all the way around the boat, felt underneath, and it looked as best I could in the water. And I couldn't even see a dent. So uh, that that was that was pretty good. That was that made me feel good. The boat is boat is good and strong. There were several sidelong glances, you might say, that we took off of growlers and burgy bits. And uh, I don't think Mo even uh, has has the slightest uh, scar. Two part question here: Were there other moments when you worried that you might not make it, that the voyage might be over, and then conversely? When did you have the sense that, okay, I think we're going to do this. I think we're going to make it through the Northwest Passage. Yeah, those are good questions. There were several times before we encountered the majority of our pack ice, which again was right in the middle of the Northwest Passage, when I was I was really deeply scared. And it is uh, the the resonance of the fear is different. I don't know that I could explain it all that well. You, uh, I get afraid in in the big bad ocean when I can see that there's a big low coming my way, and I'm going to have a day or two of super strong weather. And it it just in terms of tenor, it feels different, and I, and I don't I don't really know how. I mean, there's something about the pack ice that is is very final. Like it, I could quite easily do fatal damage to the boat. I could quite easily take the boat into a position where she won't get out for several weeks or won't get out at all. The chances of being driven ashore, which this boat has been, this is the third time this boat has gone through the Northwest Passage. And on the first uh, passage of 1990 with Clark Steed, the ice was so thick that the boat was actually driven ashore, driven up on the beach by the pack ice. Uh, and, and just luckily, uh, Clark was able to reach a Coast Guard cutter that was nearby, and they, they were able to get him off the, off of the beach. But, I mean, you're, there are only two Coast Guard cutters for the entire run of 3,000 miles up here, and so your chances of getting help when you need it are slim. So you, you need to not get into situations like that. But it's just tough. There are so many variables. Uh, you're dealing with tides. You're dealing with current. You're dealing with ice. You're dealing with potentially bad weather. So, yeah, there were many times right at the beginning of the ice navigation where I thought, boy, we're, yeah, this could be bad. But once I got into it, once once we began engaging with the ice and I found I could maneuver through even heavy ice, saw that I, I could figure out where the lanes were, I could see ahead and I could figure out the appropriate moves, four, five, and six moves ahead. Once I got into it, it was a lot of fun. Um, still long days. I mean, a 12-hour trick of the tiller is, is a long time when you're having to make judgments every minute. But it was it was quite a lot of fun. And then, yes, uh, the ice that we encounter these days in the Northwest Passage isn't total. There are there are pockets of it. So once we had worked through from the top of sorry from the bottom of Lancaster Sound, you know, we 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 took our, a turn to the south in what's called Peel Sound. 
once we've gotten through Peel and Franklin and to the bottom of Larson, which was about three or 400 miles of, of pretty heavy ice, I began to feel like, yeah, you know, we'll get through it. We came to the end of that large plug about 200 miles before Cambridge Bay. And after that, we didn't see any ice at all, except for a little bit over the top of Cape Bathurst. Uh, that's the highest point in, in, in Western Canada. But that was just ice on the horizon. So, yeah, once we got through that big plug, I got below Bellet Strait, got into Larson Sound, and on our way to Cambridge Bay, then I felt like, yep, we can make it now. We can make it. And talk a little bit about that feeling at that moment. Well, <laughs> uh, it's a kind of a feeling that at this juncture of the figure eight voyage is nice to have, but you don't take it too awfully seriously. So we'd gotten through the majority of the ice by the time we got to Cambridge Bay, but we were only halfway through the Northwest Passage. Still had half of Canada to get over the top of and all of Alaska. And even without the issue of close contact with ice, ice is always close. Uh, I never saw ice again over the entire top of Canada and Alaska, but it was probably no more than a couple hundred miles away. Big ice pack, you know, Arctic Ocean ice pack. So it's always right there. And then you're always dealing with, at least I am, dealing with the worry of what could go wrong on the boat now. I'm still 1,500 miles away from being out of the Northwest Passage and being out of the seasonal ice concerns. But, you know, what could go wrong? And in my case, though, my worry is always about the engine, right? I've only got one. And there's so little wind for so many days up in the Northwest Passage that you are, you are quite literally dependent on the engine to, to get out. Uh, engine is old, but she works beautifully. And I do my best to take care of her, but uh, one feels pretty vulnerable relative to that in particular. Big red, as you call it. Big red. <laughs> Big red is, is uh, facetious because she's actually quite a small engine. Uh, Mo, probably fully loaded now, weighs over 35,000 pounds. And the, the engine is, on a good day, 48 horsepower. It's really a 35-horsepower engine with a turbo on it to goose it up to 48. So it's, it's a, a little three-banger engine, but it is extremely dependable. Thank you very much. I just changed the oil and filters today because we're about to take off again for another leg. But uh, it's a really lovely little engine. I've been pleased with uh, how well she's done. And you did have a leak right before you started the Northwest Passage, correct? Yeah, and uh, in Sisimiat, luckily, super lucky actually in hindsight, uh, the rear seal on the engine started leaking. Not a lot, uh, just, a, just a small stream, something I could have certainly maintained and been on top of for the course of the of the of the Northwest Passage, but knowing you're going to be relying on your engine for the next three thousand, four thousand miles, and knowing that I was at that point a bit ahead of schedule, I, I took the time to to replace the rear seal, which is which was a bit of a trick because I didn't have one, I didn't have a real rear seal. I've got every spare you could possibly imagine for this lovely engine, but not that one. And so it took some quite some finagling. Actually, uh, there was a boat coming up from Nuke, which was about two hundred miles south of Sisimiat. And uh, I said, hey, can you help me out? Dig around the nuke, which is the biggest town in Greenland, uh, capital city. Uh, can you please dig around the nuke and see if you can find a rear seal? Here's the part number for my little engine. And uh, his name was Vincent on a boat called Alioth, and he did. He found the right seal. Uh, 
and uh, was in uh, was in Sisimia a couple of days later, and uh, that was great. I was really, really relieved to be able to take care of that. You mentioned um, quite a bit the other boats that you did this transit with. It's quite a different uh, feeling, I'd imagine, than being in the Southern Ocean where you are completely alone. Talk about that a little bit. That is that is such a strange thing, and, and yes, yes, an excellent question because you're right. In the Southern Ocean, you have two things: one, you feel alone, and two, you are alone. <laughs> the feeling uh, and the reality correspond. There's nothing down there but water. Uh, you are absolutely on your own, uh, and then you come to the Northwest Passage, and it's these small channels, restricted areas. You're always bumping up against the ice gates, and you end up kind of in these, whether or not you want to, it just happens, you end up in these loose caravans of boats. I don't know how many boats are going through the Northwest Passages this year. I'd say probably in total something around 15. And I have been kind of playing hopscotch with six or eight of them since about uh, Middle Greenland. And it's just the way it goes. It's, it's the nature of this kind of passage. And what's really strange is that uh, you you don't feel alone now because you're always in contact with boats. You may or may not see a boat for a long time, but you're usually staying in daily contact with these boats that are, you know, one or two days in the back of you or one or two days ahead. And you, you, you feel like you're in a, kind of a pack, but you are, in truth, actually still quite on your own. Uh, I remember learning this pretty dramatically in, in 2014 when I went through the Northwest Passage on Arctic Turn. We went through Bellet Strait uh, down Prince Regent Inlet, and through Ballot Strait, which is a small cut at the top of Canada, separating Canada, the top of the continent of Canada, uh, the country of Canada, from an island called Somerset Island. It's about a mile wide and it's about 20 miles long, and the tide flows into the center at about eight knots from either end, which means that if there's any ice around, the ice tends to plug uh, on high tide, tends to plug each end, and then as the tide flows out, it tends to unplug each end for the course of that tide cycle. So you're timing your transit through this one-mile wide, 20-mile long stretch to that because you got to get through before the ends plug up again. So that's what we were doing. We were a little caravan of three boats. And actually, this boat that I'm on now, Mo, was one of them. Uh, I did not own her at that point. Her name was Joa. She was owned by a Canadian couple. Uh, three boats went through on the tide. And... We got to the other end just as the tide had started to turn and just as the ice plug was getting pushed back into the end of Bella Strait. And the boat ahead of us got out. We pushed and shoved our way out. And this boat, Joa, then was her name, got stuck, ran right up on top of a piece of ice, couldn't move. And we were in sight. We were just maybe a quarter mile beyond. But there was a quarter mile of ice between us and Joa, and there was not a thing we could do for them. We could wave. We could talk to them on the radio. But there was absolutely no help we could extend. We could see them. We could talk, but there was no help. Uh, mm-hmm. So they were technically very still, still very much alone. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic that you bring up, the difference between the Southern Ocean and the, and the Northwest Passage in that regard. And when we caught up in Halifax, we talked – quite a bit about how your first figure eight transit of the Southern Ocean had informed this passage. How did that first time through the Northwest Passage uh, influence 
this trip through? Uh, I'm, I'm, in hindsight, I'm very glad I did it because I was very concerned about the dynamics of working through ice up here. So even though I, I came to the top of the ice work that we had to go through in Peel Sound and, and Franklin, even though I was still very worried and pretty scared, I still had context for how to work through it. I knew what I needed to do. I just wasn't sure I could do it. So I was, it was great that I, I took that or had that opportunity to, to go through the Arctic in 2014. It, it is difficult, if you haven't seen it and you haven't felt it, it is difficult to explain how frightening it is to have to maneuver your boat through what are essentially floating rocks and you know tiny mountains of extremely hard and uh, hull-cutting ice. And one of the strangest things I learned in 2014 was that you think about ice pack and you think about it's this thing that's floating and don't hit it. But in truth, both for icebergs and for ice pack, one of the things you have to be most careful of is the is the ice that's under the water that you may or may not see until you get very close to it. But most of the ice, actually, the ice is melting in the sunshine and the ice that's right below the water is colder. So the ice tends to melt in this kind of tongue formation and there are these great knives of ice that will stick out into the water from the iceberg or from the ice pack that are difficult to see and i remember the first time <laughs> our first ice contact uh, within the first couple of hours of making southway into peel sound i saw two pieces of pack ice and i thought well i'll just go between them and i didn't see until we were right on top of it that those two pieces of ice were actually connected under the water, and it was too late. We plowed right through it. Luckily, it wasn't supremely thick. I mean, there was a bit of a bit of a big thunk on the boat, but beyond that, there wasn't any any problem. But that's really difficult stuff to negotiate. And so, having the context, having worked through it in 2014, really really helped make me feel comfortable once we got into it. You you mentioned that it's a bit of a chess game getting through the ice. You had some assistance from a gentleman named Victor, I believe. Tell, tell us a little bit about Victor and how he assisted uh, in terms of reading ice. Yeah, uh, Victor Weger uh, lives in Canada outside Toronto and is a member of what's called the Ocean Cruising Club, uh, a, a club that I belong to and uh, volunteers his time in the summer helping Northwest Passage Yachts figure out the weather and figure out the ice. And it's a, it's great. He's kind of your ice consultant. He won't <laughs> necessarily tell you where to go, uh, but he will help you see the, interpret the charts and help you understand kind of where, where, where he thinks the ice is now and where it's going to move tomorrow. So that was great. That was actually a lot of fun to be able to correspond with someone who who'd worked extensively up here and who knew what was going on. I'm curious about some of the communities and the people that you met along the way. I remember that this vivid image you, you wrote about when the first time you went through stopping somewhere and there was a KFC and a pizza hut and you, you couldn't get chicken or, or pizza at either one because the supplies had run out. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the communities in northern Canada in the Northwest Territories are pretty isolated. 
I think I think Tuktitook, which was the last village I stopped in, is the only one connected by road. Even if these villages are on the mainland, they're just they're so out in the middle of nowhere. The only way they can get service is by air or by uh, by ship. In this case, barge. And so you, what you find is that in the summertime, when you arrive in a community, you may arrive before the summer barges have arrived. And so there, there are two summer barges for these communities. One brings in fuel, because fuel does everything. Uh, fuel runs the equipment. It heats the house. Uh, it's what you use to cook with. Uh, diesel is is everything for these people up here. So even if, even a little community of four or 500 people will have a, a tank farm off to the right or the left of the of the main living structures that is almost as big as the village. But if the barge hasn't come in, then they may be a little bit stingy with their diesel. You know, fair enough. I remember in 2014 when we arrived in Cambridge Bay, the summer barges had not arrived, and we were not allowed to buy diesel in Cambridge Bay. Instead, we were sold Jet A fuel, which is kerosene, and which I, I learned at the time actually burns burns just as well as, as diesel in a diesel engine that doesn't have the lubricants that regular diesel does. And then the other thing that hadn't arrived in Cambridge Bay that year was the, the supply barge. And pretty much everything for the year, uh, meaning all house goods, all food, all beverages, uh, clothes, equipment, tools, it's just everything that the community might need throughout the year comes in on a couple of barges in the summer and that one it hadn't arrived in 2014 when we passed through and in cambridge bay which is one of the larger villages they actually have two restaurants a kfc and a pizza hut and we were thrilled because we had been eating our own food for months and we were ready for any any kind of food that wasn't ours and we made way quickly over to the kfc and they were out of chicken and then we transitioned over to the pizza hut and they didn't have any pepperoni and it was just the strangest experience to have this <laughs> restaurant open but they weren't actually able to serve their core item because they'd been out of that for months and they were waiting for the barge. It's just emblematic of how remote and how tenuous their lives are in these villages of the north. Wow. Well, looking forward, you said you were about to take off. What is the next passage and where are you headed? I am headed home. Thank you very much. We are now within about 2,500 miles of San Francisco. And given how many miles I've done, that doesn't seem like much at all. It's probably the equivalent of a jump from San Francisco to Hawaii. Maybe it's a little bit further, but it's close to that. And when you've sailed something on the order of 36,000 miles, in a year, and when you did probably 26,000 miles the year previous, 2,300 doesn't seem like a whole lot. challenge, of course, is the time of year and where I am. I'm still in the Bering Sea. We are still at 60-something north, and we're late in the year. It's October. Not quite October, actually. It's still middle September, but it's feeling like October to me. The low-pressure systems are rumbling through one right after the other. And in the Bering Sea in particular, those are really challenging. The Bering is very shallow and has strong current. So it can kick up a sea pretty easily. So I'm having to look closely at the weather and probably will have to pick and choose my windows between here and probably about 40 degrees north 
and the Gulf of Alaska before things start to clear up. So it's it's a challenging run from here to home. I'm ahead of schedule. If I left right now and had no stops, I could probably be home by the first weekend of October. But I think what I will do is take off today or tomorrow and head down toward the Aleutians and see what the next four or five days bring. Right now, it looks like there's a big, uh, big low-pressure system moving through at the end of the week. Lots of places to hide in the Aleutians. So we'll plan to hang out there and wait for our weather window if that's what happens. If not, I'll probably press on. And you faced some of this over the past few days. You, you were just writing about how you're fighting a current. You've got some good wind, but it, it kicked up a big sea. And, and what, I'm really, what, what really struck me was the whole mindset change you had to go through from motoring through the Northwest Passage to going back out at sea. And it's been nerve-wracking. It, it is. It's also been great, right? I love to sail. I have a sail boat. And that's the, the feeling of moving through the water under wind power and having the boat steered by the monitor wind vane, which is a wind machine, is a great feeling. But it's very different uh, than what you, what you do when you're under engine. Moe's been kind of like a cruise ship the last 3,000 miles, right? There's a lot of calm weather up in the uh, Arctic area because it's under a large high-pressure system in the summertime. So not a lot of wind, not a lot of sea, typically. So the boat is still. We're motoring along at our six knots. I can set my coffee cup down, and it stays where I put it. Even if it's not a boat-approved coffee cup, it doesn't tip over. But suddenly, yeah, to your point, we're sailing again. So the boat has to be buttoned up. <laughs> Things have to be put where they don't come flying across the, the cabin as we take a sea. And that uh, that that uh, it took me a couple of days actually to get the boat put back together again, get ready for that kind of action. And how do you balance the excitement of being close to home with not getting complacent now? Uh, that is a really good question. I I don't have a trouble with that, quite frankly, Ben, because I can see the weather systems that are moving through on my lovely uh, weather reports, and they, they're supremely attention-getting. So I don't <laughs> feel the least bit complacent at this point. I know that what we're going to face between here and, you know, several hundred miles south of the Aleutians is it's going to be a real challenge. <laughs> and I've spent quite a bit of time over the last several days getting the boat ready, you know, making sure the running rigging is, is up to snuff, uh, checking the standing rigging, uh, making sure the sails are ready. And we actually blew out a sail Again, just as we started sailing near Cambridge Bay, I had to, had to change that out to the spare uh, number two. So, no, I, I thank you very much, but no, not feeling complacent one bit. And uh, I don't want to make you get ahead of yourself here, but how do you imagine coming back and sailing under the gate? Do you let yourself think about that? Not a whole lot, actually. And what I, when I think about what I look forward to, what I look forward to is being home, you know, in, in at the house with Joanna, my wife, and living that life that you live as a domestic couple and that I haven't lived in two and a half, three years now. This is my second attempt at the figure eight. And before the first attempt at the figure eight, I spent the majority of that year doing shakedown cruises. So I've been sailing, soloing pretty much constantly for the last three years. And I look forward to getting home and cleaning the gutters 
of dry, dead leaves and weeding the garden and <laughs> sweeping the sidewalk and kind of just getting back to normal. It won't last very long. I'm sure there will be something around the corner that will be uh, equally as interesting and adventurous. But uh, I, I really am looking forward to, to being planted for a little while and getting to know my wife again. <laughs> well, right now you're you're missing a, a heat advisory here in the Bay Area, so uh, some of us are envying envying your cool weather there. Wow, really? Yeah, it's it's well. To be frank, it doesn't feel particularly hot up here. But if you're a local, the big complaint early in the spring was how what a terrible spring it was in the north. Kind of, kind of people had a late winter up here apparently. But everyone I've talked to in the last several towns have said what a what a warm summer it's been, and they're saying this, and I'm still on a jacket, and it's still like you know 50 degrees outside, but that's really warm up here. Looking <laughs> so, at the pictures of you on your blog, you still have your fuzzy uh, fur hat there on and uh, keeping warm. Yeah, yeah, I love that hat. That that that's my. I, I may have to wear that even when it gets warm. That's uh that, that is the best hat. I call it my uh, fish fur hat. Because it's a, it's an old trapper's hat, but it's not real fur, so I call it fish fur. How cold did it get as you were going through the Northwest Passage? Yeah, surprisingly not that cold this year. I recall that in 2014, we had a lot less sunshine, and we had a little bit more wind. And we had many days where it was the temperature out on deck, not counting the wind chill, was right around zero, you know, right around 32, right around freezing. And there were maybe two or three days where we had those kinds of conditions during this passage. It was much warmer. During the majority of the ice work for me, I had sunshine and zero wind. So it was beautiful. I was still, you know, still cold. I was still in my jacket and my fish fur hat. And, uh, but I didn't have like triple layers of, of fleece underwear on like I had anticipated, certainly had on board. Uh, it was amazingly warm this year during the central portions. But it's that kind of warmth, which I'm sure you've experienced in the mountains. The moment you're out of the sunshine or the moment that the, the wind kicks up even a little bit, you can feel how bitterly cold it really is, really is in truth. And it just happens to be that you've gotten lucky on that day and you're in you're at calm and sunshine. Mm. Well, you told us a little bit about the challenges on the final leg home here. What is your route? You You cut through the Aleutians. How do you go? Yeah, from here, pretty much straight south, depending on the weather systems that I uh, encounter, but pretty much straight south. Uh, I haven't decided yet if the target is Dutch Harbor or maybe Sand Point. We'll see what uh, the weather brings. And from there, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Typically, you'd head pretty much straight south out of the Aleutians, and then you'd try to pick up the top of the North Pacific High, and follow that into San Francisco, uh, follow that into the east. Or another opportunity would be to take leave from the Aleutians and head in toward the coast and follow the coast around and pick, you know, pick up the prevailing northwesterlies. But it's a real mixed bag with these low-pressure systems blowing through. What they, what they do is either really constrict or just obliterate the North Pacific High for a day or two, then it reestablishes and then they come through. So I haven't, to be frank, I haven't really figured out what the route would be south of the Aleutians. 
Uh, it will really depend on, on the particular low-pressure systems and their position relative to me as I'm moving through. But what I'm hoping to be able to do is head due south from the Aleutians until I get below the mainstream of low-pressure systems because they're pretty tight and they're pretty mean right now. I think when I get down to about maybe 45 or 40 degrees north, I'll be below the below the train. And that, that will allow me to pick up so low-pressure system moving counter clockwise so if i can get below them what i'll get is that westerly wind from the low pressure system that should help push me back towards san francisco well we're eagerly anticipating your arrival um and we'll follow your route whichever one you take as you head south back towards us is there are there any other reflections on the passage the northwest passage or the whole trip so far that, that, that you'd like to mention Reflecting has not been something I've had a lot of time for just yet. Uh, I'd be happy to answer that question in detail after after I get home. But uh, at the moment, we're we're still making our way. Uh, we still have a quite a maze of of islands and weather to get through before we're home. So, thank you very much for the opportunity to reflect. But I've got to stay focused on the on the goal of getting home first. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> hopefully, we'll catch up with you uh, after you've completed. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Randall. Thanks for taking time there in Nome to uh, chat with us before you head off. Hey, thank you, Ben. Uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, doing these chats over the course of the Big Eight. So thanks for the interest and for the intelligent questions. It's uh, a lot of fun to have chats. You can track the last leg of Randall's trip at figure, the number eight, voyage. Com. That's figure8voyage.com. You can also read Randall's wonderful blog posts and see the occasional videos he posts. And if you live in the Bay Area, come out and welcome Randall home when he sails back into San Francisco Bay in what he thinks will be roughly another month or so. That's all for this week's show. Thanks again for listening. You can reach me, Ben Shaw, with questions or suggestions at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Until next week, smooth sailing.